Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. He sat on his golden black throne in the middle of his palace, in the middle of his kingdom the most powerful man in the world. Any word he uttered would be law across the known world. His words stretched with great power, north all the way to England, south all the way to Africa. Any utterance was law east all the way to Asia. There was nowhere you could find yourself in the known world where he was not your Lord. Leaders, politicians, entertainment figures, they all bowed down to this one man. The depth of his power could be felt through the peace everyone would face in their day-to-day lives. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Peace was, that was brought about through the violence of the most powerful military force to exist. And, uh, and all that he did was to increase the depth of his power both over what he already owned and what he had yet to grasp. He alone, seated on his throne, wore the crown. He was the king But more than that, he was the king of kings. And he was called Caesar Augustus. And by the end of this man's life, he was worshipped. He was a god in the eyes of his people. People either bowed down to him or to images of him. Have you ever had that happen to you? Me either. This guy had some incredible power, incredible influence. Everything that Caesar saw belonged to him. And yet, as he grew older, he refused to grow content. So to flex his power and display his greatness to all, he spoke from that throne. And we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus and all, that all the world should be registered. As he sat bored and discontent, he spoke just a word. And as this word, as would happen with any word that he spoke, left his lips, it became law. And the entire world began to pack. And they began to travel each person to their hometown, all because one man was bored. Because when this king spoke, you obeyed. Thousands and thousands of people rustling across the known world because a king was bored and wanted to massage his ego and collect more taxes so that he could then in turn do more of the same. And in the midst of all of this chaos, Theologian N.T. Wright says this, This man, 
this king, this absolute monarch, lifts his little finger in Rome. And 1,500 miles away, in an obscure province, a young couple undertakes a hazardous journey, resulting in the birth of a child in a little town that just happens to be the one mentioned in the ancient Hebrew prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And it is at this birth that the angels sing of glory and peace. Which is reality and which is parody? See, as the king of kings declared to the world that he wanted a census taken, the king of kings was at work bringing his son to Bethlehem to be born in a dirty and stinky manger. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And yet, in this moment, the prince of peace would enter the world. And so we ask, which is reality and which is the parody? Which was the real peace and which was the fake peace? Which kingdom was real and which was fake? And ultimately, which king was truly sovereign and which was not? As Caesar lifted his finger and caused the whole world to respond, we see that Caesar acted, knowingly or not, only in response to the real king. Unbeknownst to him, he was laying the groundwork to establish a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And this will be our backdrop for this series that we're calling Lit, Turning Off the Dark. As the, light of this, as the light of the world came into this world, the dark wasn't in charge and the light suddenly began to overtake it. The light always was. And he wants his kingdom back. And so we'll pick up this morning in John chapter 1. This is where we'll be spending uh, most of our time. John chapter 1, and starting out just in verse 1 here. We read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, who in the world is the Word? There, there are four books that start the New Testament. Uh, that we call the Gospels. And within those four, we have three that we call the Synoptic Gospels. And, and all that means is that they're similar. Uh, the stories that they tell, uh, for the most part, the chronological order, and, and so many things about how these men developed their account of this man Jesus were similar. But one of those books stands out. One of those books believed to, to have been written after the, other, after the other three and to have gleaned from those three was the book of John. Matthew and Luke both start by walking us through the genealogy of Jesus. Mark starts out by telling us some of the early uh, ministry actions of Jesus. But John, J John takes a totally different approach to the whole thing. And John starts by telling us about the Word. He gives us an immediate question. 
Who are you talking about, John? So some things for us to note. John says, in the beginning was the Word. So before anything was, the Word was. And that's what's important for us to understand because nothing was before the Word. The Word existed before time itself. In fact, it is an action of the Word that sets time into motion. It was when the Word created all things that time began to exist. So we can begin to see both from from this and from a little bit later that the Word is God. John plainly writes later, the Word was God. And yet, John at the same time writes the Word was with God. The Word was with God. What does that mean, John? John is is actually doing something quite genius here. Uh, This is one of the places that helps us to understand a major Christian doctrine. John clearly tells us that the Word is God, but that the Word does not fully encompass the being who is God. There's a distinct person within the Trinity. Uh, And this is the first major clue that we get from, from John that, yes, we're talking about God, but more specifically, we're talking about a specific person from the Trinity. And then if we were to jump down even further in verse 14, we're told, John says that the Word dwelt among us. And that's it. That's it right there. That's the important part for us to grasp. That's who the Word is. We've got this Trinitarian God. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And among those, who put on flesh and dwelt among us? The Son, Jesus. And so here's the difference between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John. The first three Gospel accounts primarily focus on what Jesus did, while John primarily focuses on who Jesus is. And sure, what Jesus did is important, remarkably important, but the importance exponentially grows when you recognize who this man was as he acted. When you read the book of John and you see who this man Jesus is, for all that it's worth, and then you come back and you read about the stories of this man who was a carpenter, who as he taught, was persecuted and executed. Suddenly that becomes a little bit more important when you recognize who that carpenter was. And so that's who the word is. But that just begs another question, right? Why in the world did John decide to call Jesus the word? Why why didn't John just write, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, right? I mean, how much easier would that have been for us if if John had just laid it out uh, point blank for us? Well, what, what we have to understand is the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word for word is logos. And in David Guzik's commentary, he writes, he's far better than I could ever even try to teach you, so I'm, I'm just going to read it from him. He writes, the Greek philosophers saw the logos as the power that puts sense into the world, making the world orderly instead of chaotic. The Logos was the power that set the world in perfect order and kept it going in perfect order. They saw the Logos as the ultimate reason 
that controlled all things. And I see this is incredibly important because this shows us that John is making some serious implications right out of the gate. What does it mean for Jesus to be God? Well, it means that he's in control. It means that he was always in control. It means that things have never been out of his control. It means the only thing preventing our world from spiraling out of control is Jesus. This obscure man who we learn so much more about this time of the year. And possibly more importantly, it means that when we see Jesus come into the Christmas scene, it wasn't his first appearance in reality. Jesus always had been. And he was always the light of men. The the computational world uh, has made some incredible strides in recent years, if you haven't noticed. Uh, just what technology is able to do now is, is mind-blowing. Uh, the things that we're able to accomplish by using these little boxes with screens is, is baffling, even to someone who's had them most of his life. Uh, I, I'm still blown away with what we're able to accomplish with these things. Computers have this uh, incredible ability to make decisions quicker than I can to find research faster than I ever could have dreamed. And you can install all sorts of software on these computers and continue increasing their abilities and just do some extraordinary things with them. We've got a computer upstairs that runs uh, the displays here so that the people who forgot their Bibles at home can still follow along with me. And uh, the computer runs that while it runs software for music, while it stays connected to the internet, and it, it does all sorts of things in the background that we're, we're not even thinking about so often. Like keeping time. I mean, think, think for a second. Do you realize that it was not that long ago that keeping all clocks uniform was an incredibly complicated task? But our, com- our computers just communicate with satellites, and they're sent the correct time, and they're all in sync all over the world all the time. And, I mean, this is, my, this is doing this in the background while also running all these other things, just so many things they're, they're able to accomplish. But here's the thing. All the power, all that computing ability, and what does my computer even matter if I unplug it? It can't do anything. It's just some metal, some plastic, and glass. It's pointless. It can't connect to the internet. It can't send signals. It can't run programs. There's an electrical circuit inside of it that has to be completed in order for it to be able to accomplish anything. And so here's the question. When I unplug the computer, does the electricity cease to exist? No, that's ridiculous, right? But if I want to be able to use my computer to accomplish anything, I know that I have to plug it in. The electricity and the laws of, of how it all works and flows and, and all of that, what it, it, there, that's what allows the computer to even have a purpose. It allows for order in general. And John is telling us that the darkness has not overcome the light. The light always was. It didn't stop existing. 
Whether or not we unplugged doesn't determine its existence. Jesus coming and the whole Christmas season that we celebrate was not turning on the light. The light always was. Jesus came to turn off the dark. And so then we read something really interesting in one of our Old Testament prophets in the book of Micah. He writes in Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. He says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned. Imagine, Micah is writing to both the north and south. Israel has split. There's the the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah, and many prophets wrote to one or the other. Micah wrote to both. And, And what he's doing is he's warning about the dangers of where they're headed, of what's going on, but he was also giving them encouragement. He was writing to them about a future hope, and in the midst of that hope, He writes that Israel will be abandoned. And a couple hundred years later, it happened. The last prophet, Malachi, wrote the last letter of the last book of the Old Testament. And then for 400 years, God was gone. Or so it felt. There were no more prophets There was no more thus says the Lord. A people who had been called by God and and who interacted with God on a daily basis, who always had prophets coming to them and, and telling them how to be in right relationship with God. They'd spent their entire existence under this umbrella and suddenly God seemed to have left them. And and not just for a single generation. There were people who went their entire lives who would never know what it was like to hear from a prophet. They would never know what it was like to hear from God. Have you ever felt abandoned? Have you ever felt lost? I mean, these people had neglected the teachings of God for so long that it must have felt like he had finally given up on them. No more mercy, no more grace. Have you ever felt like you had messed up so bad that God had finally given up on you? That he finally turned his back on you and said, fine, if you really want to do this on your own, do it on your own. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, am am I alone in this? (laughs) 400 years, though. 400 years. I don't think anybody in here has experienced 400 years yet. This is a long time that Israel went never knowing. Is he coming back? 400 years that Israel was forced to sit in silence long enough that you begin to wonder if there really is any hope. 
Long enough that you begin to think, the Messiah is not coming. We finally messed this up enough. He changed his mind. These were the people who had gone from wondering when help was coming to deciding that help was never coming. In June and July of 2018, there was a a widely publicized rescue mission uh, that, that many of us may actually recall. A junior soccer team had entered into a cave, and shortly after, there was heavy rainfall that, that had uh, partially flooded the cave and trapped the team inside. There was a 25-year-old assistant coach and 12 members on that team who were ranging in age from 11 to 16 trapped inside. And as rescue missions uh, were launched to try and save the groups of people, the efforts continued to be hampered by rising water levels and surging currents. The team went a week, a week, without any contact with the outside world. Imagine what was going through their minds. As a 25-year-old, I would have been a nervous wreck I would have been having mental breakdowns. I I can't even imagine what this must have been for the 11-year-olds in there. To be trapped for a week having no idea if there's hope or not. No idea if anybody's coming. And, And think about at what point in that cave do you finally just give up and say, there's no hope. Nobody's coming for us. This is this is where my life ends. For, for an 11 year even for a 25-year-old, to have to wrestle with this kind of mentality, with this lack of hope, to be so convinced no one's coming for us. What they didn't know is that the whole world had taken interest in these 13 people and how to save them. People all over the world were working tirelessly to find a solution that would get everyone out safely. There were scientists who were trying to think, what's what's the thing that we have yet to invent that we could now invent in this time of necessity so that we can get everyone out of here? And the whole world seemed to come together to say, we will rescue these people. It's not if, but when. We will rescue them. And ultimately, everyone did get out safely. But it took a tremendous amount of effort and teamwork. The rescue effort involved over 10,000 people, including more than 100 divers, scores of rescue workers, representatives from about 100 government agencies, 900 police officers, and 2,000 soldiers. And it required 10 police helicopters, 7 ambulances, and more than 700 uh, diving cylinders. And listen, here's the important part, church. Help was always coming. Help was always on the way. Their inability to see it didn't dictate the reality of whether or not hope actually existed. Their ability to feel hope didn't determine whether or not they were right in having it. Help was coming, whether they knew it or not. And so back in Micah chapter 5, we finish up verse 3, and Micah writes, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And then we'll keep going through this passage, and it says, And the rest of 
his brothers turn to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. All hope seemed lost. The enemy had won. Hope was gone. But that was never true. That was never the case, regardless of how they felt. The darkness never overcame the light. The light was just in a different place, working behind the scenes, preparing for something new, preparing his rescue mission to save the world. And listen, very carefully, church, whether or not you can feel God, whether or not you can see God, that doesn't determine what he is or is not doing. I, I can't even begin to count all of the times in my life that I've cried out, God, where are you? And it was only moments later that I see just how involved he had always been. That I realized that in my darkest times, God had always been more concerned even than I was. Micah prophesies and makes it clear that there's going to be a time when Israel will be in the dark. But that doesn't mean that the light has been put out. That doesn't mean that the light has left. That doesn't mean that the darkness has overcome the light. Because the light can never be overcome by darkness. And let me, let me put it to you this way. Have you ever been in a room so dark that when you light a match, you can't see it? It's not a rhetorical question. You can answer that. No. no. Have you ever been in a room so bright you couldn't find a shadow? No. Yeah. It happens sometimes. If a room is well lit enough from all angles, you can eliminate a shadow. But you can't eliminate the light. Light will always win. Light cannot be overcome. Light cannot be defeated. And Jesus is the light of this world. Jesus will always win. Micah promises us that that while we may feel like it's been lost, it hasn't. He's still working. And one day, Micah promises that a son will be born and the light will be seen again. And in this period of of the darkness that you see, never forget that the light has not lost, that the light is diligently working, that the light is preparing a rescue mission for each one of us. Israel was gearing up to go through a, a lot of pretty awful situations, But the end promise is that peace is on the way. Hope is coming. Don't give up yet. We all have struggles. We all have problems. We all face brokenness in this world. And as the holidays come, for some of us, they remind us of some of the darkest places we have ever experienced. For some of us, the holidays are incredibly hard. We don't want Christmas to come. It 
If we could just skip this time of year, we could because this is the darkest part of the year for us. But Micah promises that it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to remain dark because the light has come. Uh, The Israelites waited 400 years, waiting, wondering, and finally a baby was born in a no-name town called Bethlehem. And that same baby grew up to become a man who would ultimately go to the cross. And, And as he was lifted up, the sky would darken, and it would look again as if darkness was prevailing. And it was this same man who would be uh, placed in a tomb with a rock rolled in front to seal it off so that no light could get in or out. Again, looking as if darkness is one. But we learn from this man that not one time, not ever, has the darkness overcome. It was that same man who pressed that stone out of the way and walked out of that tomb. It was that same man who doesn't remain on that cross, that same man who lives again. And the promise of Christmas is that the light cannot be overcome, that Jesus has always been the light, and that he's come not to turn on the light, but to turn off the dark. Christmas is a reminder to us that hope has come. But not only that, it's a reminder that hope is coming. Jesus told us as he was leaving, he said, if I leave in this way, know that I'll come back in a similar manner. If Jesus came once, just like he promised, can't we trust him to keep his promise again? Christmas isn't just us looking back at this baby boy, but it's remembering as the lamb came, so will the lion. As this man Jesus was born, it's a reminder that he's coming again, and the light wants his kingdom back, and the light can't be overcome. So we hold on to Jesus. We hold on to the promise of Christmas and we carry that torch into a dark world with confidence, knowing that the light will overcome. So may we as a church carry that torch. May we continue to shine the light that is Jesus. And may we carry it knowing that there's nothing to be afraid of. We've already won because the light cannot be overcome. Jesus, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the promise that you give us. We thank you uh, that you were willing to step out of your throne in heaven to take on flesh and to be born as a little baby boy, to live in this broken world, to live in this world that seems so often to be overcome by darkness, and that you would come and that you would be the light, and that you would come in a way that would remind us that you always are, that you always have been, and that you are for us, Jesus. And we ask that as we move through this Christmas season, through both the joyful times and through the sorrow, we ask that your light would impact our lives, 
that we would be a light in the darkness, that we would carry the torch of your good news, that you still love us, that you are still for us, and that you are coming back for us. God, we thank you for who you are. We love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.